Father, once again, we're thankful for the time we have together. We're thankful, Father, that you understand all things and you know the end from the beginning. And whereas sometimes there are things that we encounter, such as electronic devices that some of us are not so good with, Father, yet you know everything, Father, and the Holy Spirit can take care of this. And may the Spirit of God guide and direct in these things and may this time we have together prove itself to be beneficial and a blessing to us as we understand a little bit better uh, what spirit beings, in particular what angels, can do and what they are doing. Father, we realize that that's a subject that is not always discussed in Christianity, but it's always in a subject that is worth knowing and understanding. So may the Spirit of God be the teacher, and may this time prove to be beneficial. Now we would ask in our Savior's name. Amen. We'll go ahead and start because we're starting at a point where we've actually covered before, but we're going to go back to it for just a moment. Well, on our notes... Uh, we've been, well, we've been looking at the abilities of angels, and we remind you that what we had said is still true, that we're looking at what angels can do. We do not know for sure that cherubim and seraphim can do this plus. Um, my surmise, my guess would be that angels are able, or the cherubim and seraphim are able to do even more and may have even more knowledge, but we're not told what they do. So how they relate to the, the human race and uh, their, their part, we, we really don't know. We can only surmise, but I would guess that their abilities are probably greater. Now, remember, as we were talking about this, we introduced the idea that angels have supernatural abilities. Now, be careful when we use that term supernatural, because typically when people assume supernatural, they think that you're talking about something that, that only God has or can do. Supernatural just means above the natural, above the normal. It's something that... You and I couldn't do, but it doesn't mean it's something that is outside of what angels could do because they do have a lot of power when it comes to being almighty. They don't have all power. Almighty and all knowledge goes to God. Angels have knowledge above what we do, so they have supernatural knowledge. They have knowledge of things we don't know. They can, After all, if they can materialize bodies like the sons of God did back in Genesis 6, they obviously have knowledge beyond what we have. And they have ability that we don't have, but it doesn't require deity. God can do that and then a whole lot more. Now, remember, too, when we talk about what angels can do, we're including angels and demons or fallen angels. The only thing that's changed in the relationship of demons is they have not lost any of their ability. They just changed their allegiance. Now they're following Satan. And I think some of them, the evidence seems to be from some of the places in the, in the Gospels that they probably are a little smarter than Satan in the fact that they realize that they're defeated already. They understand that. So, we've seen they can, we can fabricate human bodies, and we saw last week that they can bring doctrine into the church, and that was on the top of page, on the top of page 9. Did I say 8? I'm on page 9. So, we have only to get through page 14. So... We have two hours tonight and one more hour, so we have three hours to do five pages. Now, that shouldn't be too hard to do. <laughs> Miss Jay's smiling back there because she knows how long-winded I can be, but uh, hopefully we'll, we will do better at that. Now, and point number seven is when we talk about these angels, they have enormous physical and mental power that's above the normal. Now, it, when we go back to sec, let's go back to First Kings again. This this. This is a fun passage to look at. First Kings chapter 22, when you find uh, the story of how this one demon did this work. So back in First Kings 22, beginning at verse 19. 
And he said, Hear now the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing before him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? One said in this manner, another on that manner. And there came forth the Spirit and, said, and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith or how? And he said, I will go forth, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, This is God, you shall persuade him and prevail, go forth and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit. Now the Lord is being credited because the Lord allowed this to happen. He didn't personally do it. But the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all your prophets, and the Lord has spoken evil concerning thee. So now there were 400 prophets here. Now stop and think for a moment. One angel, a fallen angel, one of them was able to persuade 400 men. Now, what you don't see in this context, what you don't see the indication of earlier in this context as they start prophesying, you don't see that these, these guys are collaborating together and say, well, what do you guys think? What do you think? What, what, what should we tell the king? It's like they're all called and they all go and they all say the same thing. Well, now, wait a minute. If they didn't collaborate together, then how did they get all this? How did... One, one angel, one fallen angel could do this with 400 men in that short of a time? I'm, I'm at a loss to explain that. But you talk about supernatural ability, you talk about mental power, that is something that goes beyond anything that, that I can imagine. But you'll notice in verse 23, the Lord hath put a, a lying spirit, one, in the mouth of all your prophets. One lying spirit worked with all these prophets, and there were 400 of them, as I recall in the context, if you go back. 400 men, and it only took one spirit to do this. So whenever people today want to mess around in the occult and mess around with demons and so forth and so on, uh, they should realize what they're dealing with. This kind of power, this kind of ability, you don't want to tamper with that. Just like when people try to talk to Satan or try to communicate with him, do they realize what they're doing? Uh, I don't think they really do. Now, so remember that the demons came from the two lowest ranks of angels, and yet one was enough to convince 400 men, and they didn't collaborate together. They didn't sit down and meet together and talk this over. It just appears that they all went together, and they all started prophesying and saying essentially the same thing. How did one demon do that so fast? That's just one one demon, one fallen angel could do that. So, and, and like I said, I mentioned it here again, that, uh, that God asked for an angel to persuade Ahab. He, did, he asked for a volunteer, but he didn't ask for a volunteer to lie. He just asked for someone to persuade him to go. Now, so the, the angel that steps forward was probably from the left side because right hand, left hand, uh, that's used in the Bible frequently of Right hand is the favored hand, left hand is not. So it's an angel from the left side. So there were demons apparently present when God asked this question, and it was a demon that volunteered to do this. So it's just like, what in the world? But, you know, God can use, isn't it strange that God could use a demon and allow him to do it? I'm sure the demon thought he was doing something that was going to counter God's program, but it was not exactly what he thought. But, so he put that one, that one spirit did it. Now, Demons, this is somewhat similar, but this is on a larger scale for us. This comes up to us. Demons can put thoughts in the mind of, of humans. Now, that's point number eight. Now, please notice point A underneath that. Neither Satan nor his demons can read the mind of human beings. Sometimes people seem to think that Satan can read minds, that, he, that he's 
that he's just a step below God. Well, you know, he can't read minds, and he doesn't know everything that's happening. He has to find out, because remember, he was kicked out of the government of God, so all of the things that God has planned along the way, Satan has to learn them either from reading scripture, if it's about the church, or from observation, because he's not included in the plans of God. He's not in the government of God any longer. Now, does he know everything? No, he doesn't know everything. Well, then you would say, and I I would ask the same thing, well, then how does Satan do it? How does he know how, how does he know when to place a thought in someone's mind or who to do it? Now, please remember, placing a thought in someone's mind is is not reading their mind. It is just simply suggesting a possible activity. Now, consider this. Satan has been around for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. He's been around and he's been watching the human race since Adam and Eve. He's seen how people react. Do you think that he can look at a certain circumstance and say, well, now, Andrea's in this particular circumstance, and I know how most people react, and she's a woman, and I know women are prone to do this, and, and I've watched her, and so I can tempt her because I think this is what she's prone to do. Now, I'm just picking on her, but, I mean, it's, the truth. it's true for all of us because Satan, you know, remember what it says in 1 Peter 5, that he, he wanders about, he goes about seeking whom he may devour. He watches He and his people watch. They're not ignorant. Satan is not sitting back saying, what am I going to do next? He's either accusing accusing God about us and our sin, or else he's down here roaming about looking for someone that he can get permission to tempt. And after he's decided who it is, he knows what he's going to do. He's going to put a thought, not because he can read the mind, but because he can predict how people are going to act. Now, all of us probably have had friends, or maybe our children, and you can kind of, you know, when they start to do something. Uh, in your classroom, Andrew, when you see somebody start, you know when they're getting ready to do something that they shouldn't do. You can see it. You can read their conduct. Just imagine how much more Satan can do that. and Satan can understand what's going on. So Satan can put a thought in the mind. But, uh, and, and, his, so, and his enemies can too. Look at Ephesians 6.11. Uh, Satan is pretty shrewd. He does an amazing thing, and his cohorts can do it too. His, his uh, I've heard, and and uh, in seminary, they, one of our professors was saying that probably most people don't get tempted by Satan because, as as smart as he is, his temptation would probably be a lot more difficult to handle than just a demon that would do it, and that might be true. But you notice what it says in Ephesians six eleven. It says, put on the whole armor of God. Now, you notice it says the whole armor, not just part of the armor. Sometimes people are, uh, they, they will look at this and they will, they will pull out part of the armor and say, well, this part of the armor will handle the problem that I have. No, it says put on the whole armor, every piece of it, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, your word for wiles there, and I have it mentioned down in your notes on, under point four, it says the wiles of the devil is literally the methodology. And I gave you the, if you want to look it up, if you use eSword, you can look up G3180, Mythologia. Mythologia, doesn't that sound like, kind of like methodology? That's the word we get methodology from in English. So it says that Satan, we, we, he says that uh, uh, we may be able to stand against the methodology of the devil. So he has a method. in other words, he has a plan, he has a strategy. He comes in and he knows what he has to do with certain circumstances. 
Now, now, for example, okay, Satan tempts to a number of things. Let's take one uh, discouragement. Satan sees a certain set of circumstances happening in your life. And he watches, and he gets permission. And he comes along, and he only has to say one thing to you. It's, it's a form of the lie. He says, I don't deserve this. Now, he would have put it in first person. It would come into my mind. He would say, I don't deserve this, and get it into my mind. How he does it, I'm, I, I'm not prepared to say. But all you have to do is say, I deserve better. Now, that's a strong desire. It's like, well, that's not fair. I deserve better. Do you hear, ever hear people saying that's not fair? I wonder where they got some of that from. So if you put that thought in my mind, and I'm looking at these circumstances, and that's not fair. They should have done this to me. All of a sudden now, what happens? I start to feel different. I start to act different. And I might say something I shouldn't say. I might go off and pout. I might try to get... Who knows what I might do, but it all comes from that one thought that he can put there in your mind. That one thought, his methodology, he knows if he puts that thought in, that somehow I'm going to react. I'm going to do something I shouldn't do. Well, that's not fair. You know, it may be something that's happened to me a dozen times, but this one time all of a sudden, and I've experienced this, and you may have too, something that happens periodically, some frustration you have, and it doesn't bother you at work. But all of a sudden, one time it comes across, that's not fair. They shouldn't have done that to me. Somebody dumped their work on you, you know, and they, somebody's a loafer. They dumped their work on you, and finally you say, that's not fair. Boy, it's never bothered you before because you do their work, and you do it better than they do, and you get rewarded for it, and so it's not a problem. But all of a sudden, one time, this thought comes in, that's not fair, and it starts to eat at you and burn at you. Well, if you look down through here, you'll find out that there's the fiery darts of the wicked one, things that just burn at you. Well, we'd say things that eat at you. Put this thought in there. It's not fair. It's not fair. And you get that thought a couple of times, and what does it do? It starts to eat at you. That shouldn't happen to me. I didn't deserve this. That's not fair. Well, that's the form of the lie. The lie is that you can decide, that you have the right to decide what goes on in your life, that you, you know you, you are independent of God. You can make decisions. You know what is right. You know what is best. Now, if Satan can get you to think that way, then you're going to act wrongly. And there's a lot of things you can do. So, so you can see, it says, you may be able to stand against the methodology. Satan will put things into your mind. And it says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. There you go. Remember, the angels that fell were principalities and powers. So they come along. So it's, it's the wiles of the, the methodology is Satan's. But it says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Now, they're also described here against the rulers of the darkness of this, of this world, against spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies. Now, high places, well, I would say Washington, D.C. right away. But unfortunately, <laughs> it's not literally Washington, D.C. It's high places. Well, everybody always said that. Then he says again, wherefore, take unto you the whole armor. You'll notice there it is again, the whole armor. If you learn about the armor, if you learn about satanic temptation, how to use the armor, it says you put on the whole armor, not just a piece of it. I had a friend back in, when we were in seminary. He talked about, well, this and that came along, and he took this part of the armor, put it on, and said that solved the problem, and he went his merry way. I thought, what about it, what it says here, the whole armor? So it's very common for people to do that. Now, Satan's methodology is also, if you look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, uh, it's, it's described here in a very interesting way uh, because its methodology is also called devices. 
And it's, it's pretty much similar, I think. You can say 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11. Uh, and this was about an unforgiving spirit, and it came from Satan, uh, because he's talking about, it's, it's uh, uh, let's see, oh, where does it talk about this person? Sufficient, verse 6 of Second uh, uh, Corinthians 2, 6, sufficient to such a man is the punishment which was inflicted of many. So contrarywise, you ought to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. For this end also I did write that I might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient or not. To whom you forgave anything, I forgave it also. If I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes, I forgave it in the person of Christ. So now, the person that he's talking about, this man, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It was the man who had his father's wife. Whether it was a stepmother or just, well, it's... Men, it was not uncommon to have more than one wife at this time still. So it might have been one of his father's, I don't think it was his mother, but it might have been one of his father's other wives if she had more than one, or maybe he was remarried and lost his first wife. But anyhow, it was this man, and he apparently did repent. But then when he did, the church had an unforgiving spirit. They wouldn't forgive him. Now, Paul said, and that's what Paul's talking about, you forgive him. You don't want to be overcome. Now, he goes on and says in verse 11, lest Satan should get an advantage of us for not ignorant of his devices. Now, that word for devices, and I gave you the, if you use ESOR, G3540, you can look it up. I like the way it's translated in the ESV. And, and by the way, the ESV sometimes, English Standard Version, if you, if you have it, it sometimes is helpful in some areas. It translates things even better than the King James or even the New King James which I like the New King James for several reasons, but sometimes ESV is right, and it translates this word as schemes or designs, and I think that's exactly what it is. Satan has a scheme, or he has a design on what he does. When he puts things into the mind, there's a whole scheme that he uses. He may repeat the same thing more than once. I'm not sure whether that's the, whether that's the case, but I would not be surprised if it's repeated enough times, and you get it three or four times, and all of a sudden you grab onto it, and you start thinking, and it comes back, and it starts to eat at you. It's, that's what it talked in Ephesians 6 about the fiery darts, something that just burns at you. We would say more like it's something that just eats at me. You know, something really bothers you, something happens, boy, that's just been eating at me all day. And you want to go hit them, you know. And that's what this is like. So we don't know, and this is exactly what the demon, I believe when we look back at 1 Kings 22, I think that's exactly what the demon did. He put this thought in there, and he got a hold of all these individuals, and they just became obsessed with telling this lie because, well, it, it would help them. Hey, don't you think you guys deserve better than this? You guys would get recognition if you told the king good things. He'd really look favorably on you. So they're, yeah, hey, I'll get something out of this. I deserve that. You can see that, that type of thing could work. Satan is, is nobody's fool. So Satan does, it doesn't know. I put, put point D. Satan, or scripture does not reveal how Satan and his demon actually put thoughts into the mind, only that they can do so. Now, I, I don't know because I've never heard an audible voice, but I can remember there have been times, and, and I finally learned how to deal with some satanic temptation. Whenever something happened to me and, and I had this thought come and it had come before, it says, You deserve better. It came into my mind. I deserve better. I said, Wait, 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 wait. In the light of Scripture, I don't deserve anything. It's all by grace. I don't deserve anything that I have. I don't deserve salvation. I don't deserve 
the spiritual gift I have. I don't deserve the learning and the education. I don't deserve any of that. But so Satan come along, and I, and I caught that, and I said, wait a minute. I know where that came from. You deserve better. It's a form of the lie. That I, well, Satan wanted to be like God. Well, here, I'm like God. I can decide what's best for myself. I can decide what I deserve to have. Gee, I forgot I was saved by grace. I forgot that God gave me it. Oh, no, no, forget about that. I know what I deserve now that I'm a Christian. No, you don't want to go there. And so Satan can do that, just that one thought. So be careful. That's just a, just a little commercial off the side here, a little bit for, about satanic temptation. If that thought comes to you and, and something happens, I don't deserve this, I deserve better. Stop the moment and say, wait a minute. Do I have the right as a Christian to decide what God should do in my life, what circumstances should come to me? I'm, I'm, I'm allowed to decide that, right? Chapter and verse. I don't know where that is anywhere. I don't, I don't read that in Scripture, so be careful. It took me a long time to learn that, but boy, I'm glad I did because it saved me a lot of frustration. Now, bottom of the page, this one is, uh, could go either way. And, and Isaiah, let's go to Isaiah 37, verse 36. Now, it's translated with a definite article, the angel of the Lord. But there's no definite article in the text. Now, the problem with that is, is that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament most often does not have an article before it. It's just an angel of the Lord, but we know by context it is the second person of the Godhead, the pre-incarnate Son. Now, in 37, 16, I believe it's 37, 37, 36. Um, then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and four score and five, 185,000, when they arose in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So they all got up in the morning and said, hey, guys, we're all dead. We're done. We can't do anything. I've always, that always struck me as funny. It's like you can see these guys getting up in the morning and said, hey, we're not going to war today. We're dead. Let's lay back down. Now, the Hebrew text, I, I know it says the angel of the Lord. There's no definite article. And it very likely could be the angel of the Lord, but it also could be just an angel of the Lord. Now, I, I'm not prepared to say either way, but I suspect that they could, that could be the case because when we find out in Scripture, uh, the angels are called a host or army. And so I wonder sometimes, when David slew his ten thousands, did he have a little bit of help? Could one man slew ten, slay ten thousand people? Or did he maybe have a little bit of help? Because they are called, they are called the, the armies of God. You can find that in a number of places. Jehovah, when you read in the Psalms, several times you read, Jehovah of hosts, or the Lord, all caps, which is Jehovah. Lord of hosts. And the word that's translated a host, well, for example, look at Psalm 46. This isn't in your notes, so I can't charge you for this. I'm afraid I'll have to give this as a freebie. So Nobody's here for you to pick on. I can't pick on Courtney, and I can't pick on Pastor, so... Well. I'll have to pick on my daughter back there, yeah. Oh, my wife, yeah, I could do that too. Except I've done it enough already. But in Psalm 46, you'll find it used, and it makes you wonder because uh, I know at the Battle of Armageddon, it's going to be the second person is going to do all the work, and we're going to be in the army that follows. So I'm not sure whether this army is just, um, is just there for the show of strength, although I don't know that God needs that. But in, in Psalm 46... And verse 7, it says, uh, it says, The Lord of hosts, the God of Jacob, is our refuge. 
the Lord of hosts, the Lord of army. That word for hosts is translated army or battle a number of times. For example, you can put a reference down Psalm 103, verse 21, where the word is this, this word that is here, hosts, is translated battle. So these are armies. These, these, are, these are the Lord of hosts. It's the Lord of armies. Now these armies that are with him, verse 7, verse 11, again, the Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord of armies, his angels are with him. Now, do they fight? Probably. They're called armies. And I, I can't, other than this one passage, that I can't say that it isn't the second person of the Godhead. I tend to think it probably is, but I put it in the notes thinking there's a chance that perhaps it was one angel. And if it was a single angel to kill 185,000 people in one night, whew, that's a lot of power. That is a lot of power. Now, Having said that, we're going to go on to something that's a little bit easier to see. Uh, how angels serve the uh, believers is summarized in Hebrews 1.14. Now, I look for this in the, in the scripture. You oftentimes find statements that are summaries of things, and then you can find other information later. So on most subjects, I like to try and look to find a verse that summarizes something. And this, this for angels, is a perfect summary. Hebrews chapter 1. And verse 14, now we read in verse 13, we have to read that with it. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who shall be heirs of salvation? So what do angels do? Well, that's a pretty simple, straightforward, right across the board. Angels deal with humans. It hasn't. Now, remember, one other thing here, too, I put in your notes, and this is something I hadn't thought of until I was working on the notes. You know, angels, their dealing with humanity has not changed because they're not under rules of dispensations. Now, we, we believe in dispensations. We believe that God deals with human beings in different ways at different times. He has a different set of rules for us to live by than he did for the Old Testament believer. In the millennial kingdom, we have a different set of rules that are going to come on. And it's the same God, but he's allowed to change how he deals with the human race. But the one thing I don't see is I don't see there's any difference with angels. They, were minister, they minister to the heirs of salvation. I believe that was true in the Old Testament, too. I can't prove it beyond what it says here, but it, I do know that angels are not subject to dispensations. They're subject to ages, but not dispensations. Dispensations are for humans. So it, angels and their relationship to the man, I don't see it as being any different. So I think this is something uh, that's important to know. And one of the important ways angels minister the heir to salvation is providing, providing physical guidance and instruction. Now, they, 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 uh, angels have assisted those who, and I think sometimes you can say angels assisted those who are not even identified as believers when it, when it was something important in the plan of God. Now, I would start off by saying, let's go back to Genesis 16. I cannot say whether Hagar was a believer or not. Now, what it says about Ishmael makes me believe that, uh, no, he, he probably wasn't because of the description of him. He would be a wild man. He's described as being that. And um, it's actually in Hebrew, he shall be a wild ass, which is a stubborn, stubborn, stubborn animal. They're hard, to, they're hard to teach and hard to break. I don't think he was, but if you look at, at Genesis chapter 16, and starting at verse, uh, well, we'll have to go back in context a little bit. Uh, whoops, 15, chapter 16. And back to verse 4. And he went into Hagar, and 
she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress, which would be Sarah, was despised in her eyes. And Sarai said to Abraham, my wrong be upon thee. Hey, now, wait a minute. Whose idea was it to go into her and have children? It was Sarah's thought, but now it's, she's turning on poor, poor Abraham, henpecked guy that he was. I've given you, uh, my wrong be upon thee, I've given my maid into your bosom. When she saw that she conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between me and thee. Whew, how about that? She's blaming him, and she wants the Lord to take the matter up. But Abraham said unto Sarai, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleases thee. So what does Abraham do? Passes the buck. <laughs> these two are real. This is a, some of the, if when you read these things, take it literally. Is this, this, this man kind of a, a milk toast sometimes? Well, it's up to you. Do what you want with her. I mean, wait a minute. It's going to be his heir. And the, and the time which is, that would have been his firstborn. And in the sense of the time, not knowing what we know about scripture, that would have been his firstborn child. And he's just going to say, well, you know, do what you want to. <laughs> If he hurts the woman, what about the child? Well, so anyway, we go on. Verse 6. But Abraham, okay, behold, she is in your hand. And when, when Sarai dealt hardly with her, or harshly, she fled from her face. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain on the way to shore. And he said to Hagar, Sarai's maid, Whence goest thou? Where are you going? And whence, or when, where, whence camest thou? Where did you come from? And whither will you go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. And the, Lord, and the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, I will multiply your seed exceedingly, that it shall not be uh, numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. And he shall be a wild ass, literally, in verse 12, his hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of his brethren. Did you ever think about what might have happened if Abraham hadn't had that child by, by Hagar, this wild ass? Think of the trouble we have in the Middle East. It comes back to this man right here. It's no surprise that there's a the problem. It's just, it's amazing how one little act can change history like that. Just that one thing. If he hadn't had that son, it could have been so different. But his hand's against every man, and boy, I'll tell you what. If you see where they've gone, different places in the world, they've, they've gone into France, and they've, everything the French want to do, they oppose. And they fight with each other, and they fight with the French. It's just, oh my goodness, these people are something else. Well, now, you'll notice I put in here, the American Standard Version says, it translates this Genesis sixteen twelve. He shall be as a wild ass among men. So the new, the old American Standard nineteen o one, which is pretty good in the Old Testament. The American Standard nineteen o one. If you've ever used it or ever use it, when you get to the Old Testament, in particular, it's pretty good translation. It improves on the King James quite a bit, and the English Standard Version also does that. But it's, it translates it to be a wild ass. Now, an ass is a stubborn animal. It's hard. To, they're hard to train. You have to beat them to train them. You know, and I don't know if you, how far you can get with uh, this individual. But you notice I put in there, history has testified to this verse. Boy, has it ever. I would say that history has testified. Now, so an angel gave guidance to Hagar. Was she a believer? I, I don't know. I don't see the evidence either way. 
I know Ishmael wasn't. I can see that pretty, pretty surely. I'm pretty certain you can say he wasn't. But was Hagar? You know, I really don't know. We're not told. And so it may very well be that this was an unbeliever that God dealt with because there was a place that her son would play in history that had to be played out. And so God made sure that she did, that she took care of herself. Now, the next one is, is a little bit more of an interesting one in some ways. In Genesis 19, you'll find that Lot was led out of Sodom by two angels. Now, this is such a, boy, when you talk about depravity, people want to talk about how bad it is in this country. When we get down to verse, uh, verse 4, we, we can ask a simple question. Is there any place in our country that would be like this exactly? So let's start reading at Genesis 19, beginning at verse 1. And there came two angels to Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. And, and Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold now, my lords, I turn in, I pray thee, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and you shall rise up early and go your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street. And he pressed upon them greatly, and, he, and they turned in unto him, and they entered into his house, and he made them a feast, and they did eat unleavened, uh, unleavened bread, and, and he did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. Now, I'd stop there for a moment and say, I'm not sure that Lot recognized that these were angels, because they took on human flesh, and back in Genesis 18, they appeared, two of them appeared with, with the Son of God, with, with Jehovah, the, the Spirit of, uh, would be the second person. And those two came to, to Sodom. Now, Lot may have recognized them. I don't know. It doesn't really give me an indication. Although when he bows his face, now he's sitting in the gate. Now, when, when you see that, that sitting in the gate, that's where a judge would sit. So he was a judge. He was a recognized official in, the, in their country, which, or in their city at least, and which is pretty, pretty remarkable. But we also know something about him, is that Lot was a believer. Now, uh, actually, he was a believer before Abraham was, which is, to me, fascinating. But if you look at Second Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, you see something about him that's important. I have, it in your footnote, I have a footnote down there that mentions that Lot is picked on as being a backslider, but uh, uh, I would think that Second Peter chapter 2 would point out that that isn't the case at all. He just didn't have Paul's writings to tell him he should separate from unbelievers. Uh, why didn't he read what Paul said? <laughs> Probably because Paul wasn't alive to say it yet. Okay, and it says now, um, verse 6 of Second Peter chapter 2, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, and condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example to all the, those after that should live ungodly, and delivered just. Now that word for just is one of the ways they translate the word that is righteous. And delivered righteous lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. So there, that's the story about him. Did he go? Did Lot go along with what they said? No, he was there. But how much scripture did Lot have, by the way? Did he have any books of the Bible? <laughs> no, the Bible wasn't written. He didn't have anything to tell him that he should separate from unbelievers, so he didn't. He didn't know any different. So, you know, when people try to make him a backslider, they're, they're, they're barking up the wrong tree, according to Second Peter 2. He was a believer. But look what happens. The, in verse 4, 
But before they, this is Genesis 19.4, and this is where I'd ask you, do you see anything like this in our society yet? I'm not saying you won't, but do you see it yet? And I don't think we can say we do. Before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. Okay, now you notice how I broke that out in your notes. The men of the city, which ones? Well, if it says the men of the city, it implies all of them. But then it says both young and old. How many is that? But then it goes on to say all the people. Well, you could say, well, they're from the lowest classes. But then it says from every quarter. Now, that word from quarter, that's an interesting word. It's a word that means at the end, the extremity of something. From one end, in other words, you could say from one end of town to the other, every man came. So it's pretty emphatic. It's just, it's so emphatic here. It's the men of the city. That alone should be enough. But no, he adds to it, both old and young. So there's no age difference. Then it says, all the men from every extremity, from every end of town. And I think the way the... the uh, I, the ESV here is kind of interesting. In Genesis 19.4, the English Standard Version translates this to the last man. Now, that's more of an interpretive translation. Sometimes some of your translations will, will do interpretive, where, they, where they'll put it into terms we can understand. From, because the word means to the extremity or the end. To the end of, so one end of town to the other. So if you just say to every last man, that kind of covers it, doesn't it? So in other words, I think the ESV makes that point, and I think it's a good point to make. It's from one end of town to, the, to every last man. Now, is there any place in our country where every single male in the city is perverted? I don't think so, not yet. You know, they talk about San Francisco and its depravity and so forth. Although I think they talk more about it these days because of the uh, stuff on the sidewalk and the homeless. They have actually had a map some years back, I don't know if any of you saw it, of places where it showed the, the feces in the city. And <laughs> at least one person saw it. He was like, are you kidding? They, they'll make a map. They'll spend the money to make a map. Why don't they go out and clean it up? Save the money making a map and go out and start cleaning this stuff up. Ugh. Well, anyway, uh, even, at, even at its worst, I don't think we have any place that does it. Now, what is something, what is fascinating here? Is you know, of course, the, the men performed something miraculous. They pulled, they pulled uh, Lot back in, and so I think Lot by this point has got the message that these were not just ordinary men. Now he may have, because he bowed down, he may have recognized there was something different about them. I don't know, but once they pulled him back in, uh, he got the message. But what is really kind of sad here for Lot is that uh, when when it uh, when Lot went out, if you notice, let's go. Uh, well, let's see, verse uh, 12, starting at verse 12 of, of Genesis 19. And the men said unto Lot, Have you here besides your son, your, any besides son-in-law and, and thy sons and thy daughters and whatsoever thou hast in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the cry of them is waxen great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Now, so there you have two angels that are going to destroy the whole city. So there's a good illustration. We said that, well, we don't know that the angel, that wasn't the angel of the Lord back in, in Isaiah. But here we can see two men were going to, two, two angels were going to destroy the whole city. They were going to rain fire and brimstone. Well, that was going to be quite a mess. And so 
verse 14, And Lot went out and spake to his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. So he didn't have, you know, that's why the people say, well, it's his fault. Well, it's not his fault. His sons-in-law married his daughters, and it, he, didn't have, he couldn't make them do something. He couldn't, he couldn't evangelize. He wasn't an evangelist, let's put it that way. And I don't think you can fault him for this. But here's where you do get into some problems. In verse 15, And when the morning arose, the angels hasted Lot, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters, which are here, lest you be consumed in the city. Verse 16, And while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him, and they brought him forth and set him without the city. So they caused him to come forth. The men seized him by the hand. Verse 16 says, literally, the men seized him by the hand and by the hand of his wife, by the hand of his daughters, and the Lord being merciful, and they caused him to come forth and set him outside of the city. So it's a form of the, it's a form of the verb in Hebrew that indicates that they made it happen. The angels, it's just, it would have probably, they, they let him forth, would have been enough, but the, the form of the verb of sin makes it very emphatic. They made it happen, which makes it sound even more like Lot was kind of, well, let me think this over. You know, isn't there something we can, you know, no, they just come and said, you're going. And so it's rather interesting. So they made him come out of the city. That's what it really says. They caused him to come forth and set him outside the city. Now, he didn't want to do it, apparently. Even though he knew what was going to happen, somehow I think he's, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what he was thinking, but he didn't want to come out. But now, you'll notice point E, and I put this in here just as a reminder, Lot did not condone or participate in Sodom's lifestyle in any way, because we know that from Second Peter chapter 2. He was a righteous man. He was vexed by what they did. Uh, just on a human scale of things, you might wonder, well, why would he sit there and take it? Why would he? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I guess he, maybe he really felt as though he could make a difference. But that's doesn't happen very often. Number three, Abraham believed an angel of God would guide his steward to find a wife for Isaac. Now, this whole story in the 24th chapter of Genesis is really remarkable because I think when you look at it, You'd have to conclude by reading through this and the things that the steward says, which he's identified back in the 15th chapter as being Eliezer of Damascus. But here he's just called the steward. Well, the steward was identified by name as Eliezer. I believe you can see he's definitely a believer because he prays to God. He asks for, for God to show him unusual mercy to do something. And he gets the help that he wants from God and he gives God credit for it. So I believe this man, his steward, was also a believer. Evidently, Abraham had effect on him. But now you'll notice in verse, uh, let's see, verse 7, it says, the Lord, uh, it says uh, the Lord God of heaven, this is Abraham talking to his steward, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, which spoke unto me and swore unto me, saying, Unto your seed I will give this land. He shall send forth his angel before thee, and you shall take a wife for my son from thence. He shall send forth his angel. Now this is Abraham stating that. Abraham believed that this would happen. And I probably did, because everything worked out well. But he sent his angel. Now, I don't think necessarily Eliezer saw somebody physically in front of him. But there was an angel that led him on the way that probably made sure nothing happened. That probably protected him along the way from robbers. Because, well, in those days, when you traveled, they didn't have 
police force. They didn't have state troopers setting out there and speed traps and everything else. Camels didn't go fast enough anyway, but I could just see getting a speed t- speeding ticket on a camel. Well, but so he was protected on the way. And again, in verse 40, it talks about, about that. And he said unto me, the Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with thee and, you, and prosper your way and you shall take a wife from my son of the kindred, thy father's house. Now this is when Eliezer was explaining to the family why he wanted to take Rachel back with, or Rebecca rather, Rebecca back with him. He was explaining this was his mission. And so you'll notice that it's just, we, back here we, we know that the text only says his angel. And his angel does not normally refer to the angel of the Lord. So it's very definitive. I don't think there's any question that this was just an angel that led him a long way. And not, this, not the angel of the Lord, which would be the pre-incarnate son of God. I don't think he was involved. It was just an angel. And Abraham thought that was what was going to happen. And as near as we can tell, that, that, would, be, that would be what happened. Now, uh, we think that this is top of page 11. Therefore, we think that Abraham was only saying that God would send an angel as God had done in Genesis 18 and 19 for Lot. You remember, God sent angels for Lot. Now, of course, in Lot's case, they had to get a hold of him and say, come on, which that wasn't required for, for Eliezer. Now, also, if you look over to 31st chapter, another person, well, when you read some of these people in the Old Testament, just take the word literally, Jacob was a real shyster most of his life. He really was a shyster, and, and some of his shystering, I don't know, is that a word, shystering? It's a word? Yeah, being a shyster, his shystering. If it's not a word, we just made it one tonight. His shystering. But he was told to return, if you look at the 31st chapter, and verses 11 through 13. And the angel of God spoke unto me in a dream, saying, Jacob. And I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes now and see all the rams which leap upon, which leap on the cattle are ring-straked and speckled and grizzled. For I have seen all Laban has done to thee. I am the God of Bethel, where you have anointed your altar, and where you vowed a vow. Therefore, now therefore arise and get thee from thy kindred and return to the land of thy kindred. So this is an angel of God. But here, as you look down here, I put it as being an angel but it certainly looks like it was the angel of Jehovah because he says he was God. So I guess uh, he was told by, the, by the, an angel of God. We should probably change that on the top of page 11 to he was told by the angel of God, or the angel of the Lord. And it's more than likely, if you just read it at first, you can say, oh, that's just an angel. But then you see, I'm the God of Bethel. No, wait a minute. That's not an angel. That is the pre-incarnate son speaking. So that would be the angel of the Lord. So that one would probably be, uh, shouldn't be in there, I guess. And I don't know why I let that one slip, but I did, so. Uh, let's see. Let's, let's stop here. It's about time to take a break anyway. <laughs>